This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome. This is your weekly hour of film and TV discussion with me, Jason DeRosso. The show is called The Screen Show, brought to you by ABC RN. Coming up today, a Polish master filmmaker, Jerzy Skolomowski, and his co-writer, Eva Piaskowska, will be talking about what I think is one of the best films of the last 12 months. It's about a protagonist with four legs and two very long ears, a donkey, and the film is called Eo, and it is a beautiful thing. As is a pair of Air Jordans, apparently, I'll tell you about the new collaboration from Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon that sees them looking back to their Gen X childhoods to tell the story of the greatest pair of sneakers ever made. I wouldn't know, I've never owned a pair, but uh, the film makes a convincing case. First, though, to actor Nicholas Braun, better known as Cousin Greg from the hit TV series Succession, which has uh, swung back around to streaming platforms, well, in Australia, the streaming platform Binge, to be precise, for its fourth and final season. Perhaps the most popular prestige television soap opera since House of Cards imploded, and I use the term soap opera lovingly. I'm a big fan of soap opera. Succession is a show that has that kind of stickiness. You can't stop watching it. It hooks you. It is about a media dynasty run by a very grumpy and Machiavellian patriarch, Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox, a hard-nosed mogul with right-wing populist instincts that gives the show an obvious relevance to the world in which we live, as you'll hear. But really, Succession is also a show about a very damaged and poisonous relationship between Logan and his family, particularly his four children, who at various stages of the four seasons have tried to either convince him to hand over the reins or have experimented with open revolt. And as this fourth season begins, three of them are, again, in open revolt against him. As for... Nicholas Braun's character, cousin Greg, well, he's a kind of peripheral player in the family. He has a tenuous blood link to the clan, and he's always awkwardly trying to find a niche for himself in this dynasty, just like Nicholas Braun's tall, gangly frame that seems slightly too big to fit into the grey corporate suits that his character wears. Cousin Greg never quite manages to blend in and in a show that is frequently funny in a very cringe-inducing way. Cousin Greg is one of the funniest characters in frame. Nicholas Braun, coming up. Why does everyone ask how I'm feeling? I got done a huge deal. I got the election. I got ATN. I got plenty on my plate. He's on the floor, Tom. Explain me what he's doing. He's moseying, terrifyingly moseying. It's like if Santa Claus was a hitman. We were cut out behind our backs. But there's a shape for things for us. We partner up with Sandy and Stewie, with Pierce. Death wrestling ogres. Excited to get into this knife fight? Let's blow it up. I'm not authorized to let you take off. It's Dad. You know, in Buddhism, sometimes your greatest tormentor can also be your most perceptive teacher. Mm -hmm. Hey, Buddha, nice Tom Ford's. Nicholas Braun, hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm very well. Welcome to The Screen Show. It's lovely to be here with you and your voice. 
<laughs> You're, where, where am I speaking to you from? Where are you physically at the moment? I kind of have no idea. I'm walking around, seems kind of like an office park uh, somewhere in Sydney, but definitely no clue. Yeah, because I'm just thinking this is almost life and art as reflections of each other. Um, is is the hectic press tour and a show like Succession where you're being driven around to various broadcasters a little bit like the life of a character in Succession? I guess so. I mean, I guess Greg and the family kind of roll around in, you know, fancy cars and get flown. Well, I didn't fly here first, uh, private or anything like that. But yeah, maybe, maybe there's a little bit. I don't think Greg would be asked to say a whole lot uh, on a press tour, on a Roy family press tour. No, he wouldn't. That's true. I mean, I've seen him continually described as dim-witted, but I actually, I wondered... I wonder what you think of the character Cousin Greg because to me I wonder if in fact perhaps he's the most sane in this crazy world and that his reactions as kind of wide-eyed and befuddled as he is, his reactions are perhaps the most normal, they're the most relatable um, given the extravagance and the sort of excesses of this world. Yeah, I I think so too. Um he is doing that thing that I think we often do, which is try to blend in, and yet you sort of fail at that sometimes. You know, he wants to be like them, and but but he's kind of he's just he doesn't have the skills, he doesn't have the language, he doesn't have the confidence yet. But we also, and I I love that. You know, we love that he's. Um, gaining some confidence and learning some of the skills and and maybe being turned a bit dark you know from the the Roy family influence uh you know which yeah which is i think good i mean i don't know if if we were all dropped into uh the murdoch click or or the redstones or whoever um I guess you don't want to be turned, but I think if you're in this world long enough, you know, it just becomes the way you can't fight it. Right. It's, 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 they just operate in a certain way and you have to learn it. Well, it's like corruption corrupts as well. I suppose Um, that's what's going on here. Yeah, exactly. Everybody will probably fall victim to it or you get, you get knocked out. You know, that's the other thing. If you want to stay in the, the tight, you know, the tight circle, uh, you kind of have to subscribe to their way of of acting. You know, I guess that you learn something about Greg through that too. Whether or not he's like confused and and dimwitted, like you're saying, uh, the fact that he sticks around and he's that ambitious and he's willing to sort of, you know, mirror some of these people and their personalities and things. It shows how bad he wants to stay in it, or you know, just how kind of addicted. You can get to this lifestyle. You know, there are a lot of people in like the Trump world that you see kind of just think just wanted to be close to it. And it changed their personality and it changed their moral compass. And, you know, you've seen politicians over the last six or, you know, eight years, whenever he whenever Trump sort of introduced himself into this um, 
not that I, not that I even really want to talk about Trump, but it's a good example. No, 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 it's a great you've, example. You've yeah. seen people's like moral compass change, and you you look at a few people, and I don't really want to name names, but like you look at them, and you're like, you used to be a good guy. Like I used to like you and think that you were a good Republican, maybe, and now you're one of the bad ones. And so, and but you know that's because like you know Trump and 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 guys like him so much revolves around him and when you're in like the nucleus of like global influence it's hard to say no to it and so you sort of have to say yes to the way that that kind of guy operates so it's kind of, it's contagious and that's because there's a lot of allure to being at the top even if it's you know evil do you, do you get the sense that this is a show watched across the spectrum politically I I think so. I think so. I think everybody can see themselves in this uh, in this family. There's I live in New York uh, in the Lower East Side, and there's a sandwich shop that's open 24 hours, run by this Korean family. It's called Sunny and Annie's, and uh, I went in there late one night, like after going out and and got a sandwich, and the whole family was in there working, and the woman at the cash register recognized me and she she like called over the family. She was like, we love the show. We love succession so much. Our dad is like Logan. And they (laughs) pointed at him and he was over, you know, he's like stocking a freezer and, and he didn't even like respond. He was like kind of a grump. And I was like, so this, you know, even this family, you know, making sandwiches and running a deli, they see themselves in the Roy's. And, you know, and I know like billionaires and people in in finance and in politics love the show, too, because it is so real and so well researched by Jesse and the writers. So, yeah, I think everybody can get into aspects of the show. But it's not a show that is divided, you know, a kind of in a red state, blue state kind of way, like Republicans watch the show and can and gets, you know, it's not a show that Republicans think is just for Democrat voters or whatever. Yeah, I don't think it is political. I think it's probably uh, why it's a good thing to have in the culture right now, which is, uh, you know, it's not from a liberal standpoint, really. It's just from a like a reality standpoint. Like this is these are the conversations. This is what's happening. You know, a guy like Logan Roy, who owns the most influential media company he does get a big vote in who the president is or you know um or, or whatever you know uh, yeah. so i do think that's a part of it do you, you guys on the show know if any of the murdochs or the trumps actually watch the show i don't know i've i've heard that they some do and some don't and some hate it and some think it's great and but i don't know really the specifics i yeah I haven't met any of them. Your father, Craig, is an actor, and he was also a world-famous artist, right? He'd worked with Andy Warhol. He's behind some of the most iconic rock images of all time in terms of album album covers, right? Yeah, he did. He did. He designed a, a ton of iconic albums. Uh, Tommy the Rock Opera for The Who, he won a Grammy for. and he, uh, he and Andy Warhol designed the Rolling Stones tongue and... He designed sticky fingers, you know, and so yeah, he was he was very well known back in those days. What in the did, industry? What did he teach you about 
acting as an actor? Did he have a particular school of thought? Did he teach you anything? Yeah, no, I mean, when he, so he quit that career as a creative designer at 54 years old and I was six years old and, you know, he was going to acting class a few nights a week. And when I would see my parents were divorced. So when I would spend the weekend with him, he would be working on scenes and going on auditions and he would talk to me about them. We would rehearse the scenes together. And so, I don't know. Then I started acting. We were both coaching each other kind of on auditions. I mean, I probably wasn't a very good coach at, you know, six, seven, eight years old, but, uh, but eventually like as a teenager, yeah, I was, we were working together, but he taught me, he taught me a lot in the early days and would do acting exercises and stuff with me. So what, how uh, would you describe your style? I mean, and the style that you approach a character like cousin Greg from, because this is such a succession is such a, a chorus of a cast and the, the scenes are often very big. There's a lot of, there's a lot happening if they're scenes, especially at big parties or, you know, on the, on the floor of a, a busy, you know, newsroom. And I imagine that, you know, you have to have a really solid base as an actor. At least you have to have a solid view on how you respond in, in scenes like that. Do you, I mean, is there a particular school you you follow, like a sort of Stanislavski school or, or Meissner school or, no, I actually don't really know about those types. I don't really know what they are. I feel like I should, but I I just think I've pulled from a lot of different places. I learned from other actors. I learned from watching performances and then being in scenes with people. And I did scene study with a few different acting teachers. Probably the biggest influence was this acting teacher named Milton Katselis. And I don't know, he kind of taught me how to self-direct and how to make choices that would like create kind of an engine for the scene. And, um, and so I try to just, I basically, my philosophy is I can't say a line without knowing why I'm saying it and creating, like knowing what the thought is. How did I get to that thought? So I draw a bit of a map in my head about where that thought came from and their line back to me created this reaction in me. And, oh, if the writing says that, then that tells me this about what Greg and um, Greg is, how he's processing things. And so, yeah, anyway, not, I don't have to get into all no, the no, like, weeds cool. of it. But. No, it's interesting. I mean, do, do you all hang out? I mean, to get to the point where, because you're living in each other's pockets in the show as characters, do you hang out outside of the show or is there a lot of hanging out while you're shooting to kind of keep in, you know, is there a sort of bubble that you're all inhabiting as, as cast or are you, do you all just go your separate ways when the cameras stop rolling? We, we go out to dinner. We, you know, I hang out with Jeremy and Matthew and I think, you know, we're all very close and now we've known each other for seven years since we started the pilot. So it's, yeah, I think there's just a, there's a lot of history there and, and, good friendships yeah you know we've spent a lot of time gone to a lot of places together and traveled and been on yachts and done all that stuff so and what yeah, about we're with pretty the, tight and what about with the writers do you have face-to-face time with the writers a lot i mean in terms of your character development over four seasons now i mean have you been checking in with the writers have they been checking in with you is there the, how does how does it work or do you just receive the scripts and you're like oh, okay this is where we're going 
it's yeah, we definitely, you know, Jesse gives me a rundown of the season as he's sort of solidifying it before uh, we start shooting. And it's sometimes even before he starts actually writing the scripts, but it's really, he and I, I love to tell him what I'm feeling and where I think things could go. And it's a really great process working with him. And obviously I, you know, uh, I think his writing is some of the best I've ever read. You know, I've been able to read the best scripts of my life over the last, you know, four seasons. So uh, he and I, he and I like to talk about it and, and, um, and figure out where Greg should go together sometimes would, would there be room for greg to continue on after this final season of succession do you think i think it's i love playing greg i would play greg as long as jesse wants to write for greg and write the show but i think it might cheapen what succession is as a story to make a spinoff it's just too special. It's been just so much, just a beautiful story. And the, the way that for the fourth season ends is uh, absolutely unreal. And and so I think to to try and launch Greg off in some new thing, it just it just wouldn't make sense. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Fair it, would enough. Dilute, it would dilute. It would dilute what Succession has been for everybody. If I was to ask you what some seminal screen performances have been that have influenced you, or just if you were to go home tonight and on a wish list and and sort of look up a film that you would, or TV show that, that would just put you in a great mood or stimulate you artistically or creatively, what would it be? Do any titles come to mind? I, I just started watching, or not started, but I just watched One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest again, and I come back to that movie probably once a year. I just think Jack Nicholson's performance is what I strive to do. Like, you know, he, he's just loose and following his instincts and he's created such a clear character that you can tell he's also improvising within what that, you know, within that guy who he is and, uh, so that's just, that's a, a part that I'm always, I just study it, try to figure out what he did and how he did it. And, and have you come closer to sort of working that out or is it a mystery that you can never really quite get inside watching it, you know, and is that part of the appeal that it remains enigmatic? I don't know, technically, like, do you watch it and you go, ah, I know what he's doing there. Yeah, I do. I do. I think I, you know, he's, he finds the game within the scene. That's, that's a big part of why Jesse's writing is so good. And when writing is so good, there's, there's a game, you know, what you need, what your goal is, what you need from the other character opposite you. And once you have that, you can kind of just explore whatever's within that game and change the strategy. And, and that's why when he improvises, it feels like it's the scene. Uh, and so, it's just amazing how he finds that in every scene, every moment. And, um, and he allows himself to go so fully into emotions in that, in that movie. 
So if he's going through something, he's a very dramatic character. Yeah. He's very confident and he's always right. So I don't know. I think the way that he processes what happens in that movie is so sort of big. And I think that gives him permission to, to also just be, it's so exciting to watch someone who just goes fully towards emotions. You know, they're not holding back or they're not afraid to go towards it. I think we like to see, we like to go to movies and watch someone be affected, you know, like they're going through something and, and we don't have to go through it, but we can witness some somebody going through something. And so I'm not a big fan of performances that are super subtle and the emotions are muted. Like I, I, I find, you know, Joaquin and, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I mean, those are the, those are the classics, but like those guys don't shy away from going fully towards something almost in a theatrical sense. Yeah. That's really interesting. And I think that's the the thing about succession. That's so interesting is that people are going through such extreme emotion. I mean, at the core of it, of mm-hmm. course, is this, this poisonous relationship between a father and his four children. But then that poison, you know, contaminates the relationships of people like Tom, Matthew McFadden, who plays Shiv's husband. So he's not a blood relative, but he's there by marriage. And then that marriage is falling apart. And you, who's this cousin, and it's just these ripples of real, um, well, dysfunction and you're all, however, so ambitious and narcissistic in your own ways that you, you know, the best, the best thing any of you could do is get out, but you can't because you're just addicted to it or it's like what you were saying earlier in this interview, you just want, want the power. And so that just puts every individual character in a kind of vice psychologically. They, they're acting against their best interests by staying in that bubble and watching them, they all sort of react in different ways to the to the pressure that comes on them in that way. Yeah, exactly. I th- I think it all feels so immediate. Or I think that that's how to like everything. You can do the wrong thing a million ways in this uh, in this world, and it's really all based on Logan's sort of you know standard of 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 shittiness you know what i mean like <laughs> like it, it, you know if you try and convince him that something he's doing is wrong or evil or inhumane or whatever like you'll be probably cut out you know and but and everyone so i think everyone wants kind his, of tiptoeing well everyone wants his love as well in some weird way they even when they're rebelling against him, in some way they want his respect, and I think that's the the poisonous chalice of the whole thing. Um, what's it? Yeah. Can, can you leave me with one final, with a final um, observation of maybe a fi- um, a favorite moment from the four seasons so far that that you've played in, or or a most memorable moment or a memorable scene? I think, you know, Greg in Congress testifying was an extremely uh, exciting acting experience for me. I didn't know that Greg was going to testify and we, they had built the Congress set and we knew that the, the main Congress 
um, episode had, you know, Matthew testifying and Kendall and Logan uh, and Jesse came to me and he said, hey, we have this set right now. We have the background. We do have uh, we want to open the finale with you testifying. And he gave me this script the night before and he was like, can you do it? Do you like is it OK? Can we just have you do this tomorrow so we don't have to come back to it in a few weeks? I was like, absolutely. I love, I mean, I only learned my lines the night before because I like that kind of being on the edge of not knowing them, not being too rehearsed. And, and so it's, it also was sort of exactly what Greg is going through, like trying to prepare last minute for Congress. Yeah. So then, then we did it the next day and he also gave all of us a ton of uh, lines just on the day that, you know, put in front of us and do you feel like saying any of these or you know, the conversation goes this way, you can say these lines. And so that whole experience was amazing. And also that room that they built felt so real. Like there were, you know, 20 cameras all around that were following you and, and a room full of people and photographers in front of you snapping pictures, you know, and all the congressional members in front of you. So the room felt as real as you can get, you know, when you're making a television show. So that was that was really exciting. Nicholas Braun, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much. And um, thank you very much for the work you've done on Succession. Thanks. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Nicholas Braun, see him as Cousin Greg in Succession, the fourth and final compelling season streaming in Australia on Binge. Now, before I get to my next guests, the filmmakers behind the wonderful movie EO, I thought I'd tell you about another story of corporate drama, a new film directed by Ben Affleck that's called Air and is in cinemas everywhere in Australia this week. It's about the invention of the Nike Air Jordans in the 1980s. It's hard to imagine a world in which Nike were only a small player in the sportswear industry, but Air takes us back to that time in the early 80s when they trailed Converse and Adidas by quite a margin and were mostly known as a manufacturer of jogging shoes. Air dramatizes the story of how an ambitious but very unglamorous middle-aged sales rep and basketball nut named Sonny Vaccaro, played by Matt Damon, won the sponsorship deal for Michael Jordan by promising him a new pair of shoes that would go on to immortalize the basketball great's name in fashion history. If Succession is a story of corporate America as a toxic family, this is a story about mostly white men for whom the corporate office is a warm, safe place, a promise of salvation and meaningfulness away from the destruction and dysfunction of their private lives, which only rarely and poignantly make an appearance here. Air reminded me a little bit of Affleck's Iran hostage thriller Argo in that it's about another team endeavour. Here, Affleck casts himself firmly tongue-in-cheek as the CEO of Nike, Phil Knight, a Buddhist with an alarming lack of self-awareness that extends to a very un-Buddhist attachment to a purple Porsche. But surprisingly, Air is not a story about corporate rivalries. In the final wash-up, Air is about an office family, as I've mentioned, a corporate clan, who come up against a real family who are even more disciplined, resourceful and determined the Jordans, with chief strategist Jordan's mother, played by Viola Davis, a hard-nosed negotiator. That's the main 
thematic tension, how Sonny Vaccaro tries to convince Michael Jordan's mother to let her son sign with Nike. There's a jukebox soundtrack of 80s hits, as you'd expect, and the film runs on the sentimental fuel of myths of capitalist innovation and rags to riches success. And it channels most of its energy through a very good Matt Damon, the linchpin of this story. He's an everyman, a schlub, a salesman who sells running shoes but doesn't run. He hasn't run for years and he has the pot belly to prove it. But he has an eye for greatness, which means in the context of the American dream, he has an eye for a buck. And throughout the film, he pushes his vision up a hill with a stick. He pleads with his boss. He makes calls. He gets hung up on. He's told he's wrong. But he perseveres. And by sheer force of will, he eventually brings everyone along with him. Air is a film, I should remind you, where the true great is Michael Jordan himself. But he hardly appears. Or as a figure, he appears with his back to camera in the background. The film wisely prefers to leave the enigma of who Michael Jordan was to our memories and imaginations. Sonny Vaccaro, Matt Damon's character, is the person who becomes the film's relatable incarnation of greatness. A more prosaic kind of greatness, perhaps, but greatness nevertheless. The greatness of a marketing genius. And this is mainly, of course, what the film is actually celebrating. Now, I'm the same age as Affleck, and as I've already mentioned, I've never owned a pair of the shoes, but air held me for its duration. A bit like when you're watching a winning team fighting back from a losing position. Air is out in cinemas everywhere this week. I believe in your son. I believe he's the future. And his story is going to make us want to fly. But a shoe is just a shoe. Until my son steps into it. Got a name for it? Air Jordan. I don't know. Seriously? Maybe it'll grow on me. And now, I'm leaving the best till last, and that is EO, the new film by octogenarian Polish director Jerzy Skolomowski, which won the jury prize at Cannes and was shortlisted for the International Oscar this year. Eo or Eo is a poetic, allegorical film about the wanderings of a donkey, from a circus act to a farm animal, from a beast who is praised and adored to one that's neglected and beaten up. He crosses paths with all kinds of humans, a group of soccer hooligans at one point, as Skolomowski weaves his journey through scenes of nightmarish horror, fairy tale fantasy, and surrealism. EO decenters the human figure and recenters our attention on this four-legged creature, leaving the human world to pass by on the fringes, which is not to say we aren't witness to human drama. There are glimpses of love, violence, even a murder. But the film's picaresque structure keeps humanity at a distance. There is, of course, an important precedent to this film, and that is Robert Bresson's Ohzad Baltasar, which also focused on a donkey. But Io reminded me more of the way that Hungarian filmmaker Ildiko Enyedi explored non-human sentient beings in her magical romance about abattoir workers who meet in their dreams as animals. That was called On Body and Soul. Skolomowski, along with being a writer-director, is also a painter and an actor. In his early years, he collaborated on scripts with Polanski. He played a boxer in the great 
1960 Polish film by Andrzej Wadja, Innocent Sorcerers. He had a small part too in 2012's The Avengers. As a director, he spent time making films in English in both the UK and the US, but he's been back in Europe now for several years and this impressive and beautiful film, a co-production, is a credit to everyone who backed it. EO is in cinemas in limited release in Australia and its director is coming up with screenwriter Eva Piaskowska. Jerzy Skolomowski and Eva Piaskowska, welcome to The Screen Show. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us, Jason. This is such a beautiful film and it's such a uh, poetic film of great intensity. But I imagine this must have been very difficult as a concept to get off the ground initially. Am am I right? Tell me, how, how did you manage to attract interest to produce this film? Well, obviously this film wouldn't be uh, made in uh, in Hollywood, that's for sure. <laughs> no, and no studio would give uh, the money to such a project. But we are lucky in Poland, we have a, a so-called Polish Film Institute, which is co-financing almost every ambitious project, you know, artistically ambitious or or socially. And they uh, qualified this uh, this idea about the donkey's life as a as an artistic experiment, and it was quite obvious even on the uh, version of only the script uh, that this project is made out of love for the nature and animals. So the Polish Film Institute supported us quite quite yes. strongly. And then, you know, the rest of the budget is much easier to, to get if you have already nearly half of it from the, from the official institution. So um, altogether we were, we had like, I don't know, six or seven or maybe even eight co-producers uh, giving us some money from here and there. Uh, we also have in Poland the... Um, you mean the tax rebate, yes? The tax rebate and the regional... Re- regional funding. Regional funding from, you know, certain places. So once we have chosen the locations, we apply to the local film funds and we got them. So, the, you know, wherever we shot and we shot like in the three different districts, we got the money from each of them. Um, and also, I think what Jerzy is saying is, is important to point out that not only we are the creators of the film, but also the producers of it, which means, you know, realizing this exotic idea, you know, of a donkey's trip throughout Europe. Uh, even more interesting because there was nobody to hold us back, you know, saying, oh, you shouldn't be doing that or you cannot afford this. And uh, so we basically had complete, absolute freedom of of doing what we really wanted creatively, which is a wonderful thing. Obviously, there there are 
there are some precedents and, and you know, Bresson's film, Oh Hazar Balthazar, is, is one of these key films that up until yours is perhaps, the, one, you know, one of the greatest films of all time of, of this type. And, and, and now you've really, I think, um, made something that, that, uh, that to me is of that stature. How developed was the script? Um, this is a very visual film. There are some very poetic visual ideas and sequences. Um, was the script locked before you start, completely locked before you started um, shooting? Yes, Basically, yes, yes. yes. Well, you so. know, uh, this is already our fourth film which we which we created together, Eva and I. And uh, the one before we made seven years ago. So we had a long time to think what should be our next project. And what we basically start with was the knowledge what we don't want to do. And we decided that we don't want to follow the linear narration of the, you know, so-called three-act structure where you... And the plot-driven, you know, storyline and all those, you know, very well, very much expected elements along the way. It become kind of boring for us to follow those rules, you know, that you have to have this uh, a plot point on the 18th minute of the film, you know, and then to have the... to have little conflict which will be resolved and then another one and another no we don't we didn't want to work uh, you know by the rules of the book so mm, we wanted to find some different uh, kind of narration and we thought that perhaps if we dare to have the animal character as one of the leading characters or maybe the leading character that would definitely help with finding a different type of na narration. And that's what, what, what happened. We started with this, and then we, we thought, what would be the important subject of, of present day? And uh, then, uh, you know, our own experience, because we, we live in a deep forest, Mm, although we have the apartment in Warsaw, most of the time when we are in in Poland, we spend uh, in the countryside, which is uh, northern part of Poland called Mazuria, and there are wonderful forests and lakes over there, and we found an old nineteenth-century hunting lodge deep in the forest, deep in a wild forest, you know, far away from, from any other humor settlement. And we enjoyed very much being alone there. But every time we leave the house to have a walk in the forest, we keep meeting the wild animals, deers, rabbits, uh, foxes, you know, and we pay a full respect to them because we are the intruders. This is their territory. So we learn to behave, you know, we stop on our, our movements. We let them pass, you know, peacefully. Um, and, uh, 
I guess that was... And we, and we appreciate, you know, the beauty and the dignity and the, you know, this amazing grace that they, you know, exhibit at each meeting. But coming back to your question about Azar Baltazar, I think it's uh, it's important to notice because it was also a very important, you know, element for us during, you know, the thoughts about, about this film, that Bresson, you know, treats his donkey like uh, he looks at him from outside. You know, it's just a, you know, this is a very much a human story about an animal. What we've done is just shifted the focus completely. And I think this sort of, uh, you know, uh, gives, um, uh, uh, you know, the most credit to Eel, you know, because it sort of makes the animal of the focal point and the, you know, the protagonist of the film itself. And I think this this shift in 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 a, in, a, in a perspective is very crucial to to the reception of this film what i'm interested to know is that um the people in the film aren't as respectful to the donkey as you are to as you were to the animals that you met when you're in this forest working on this film perhaps um and i'm wondering what the what the main theme of the film is for you, because to me, it's not necessarily a straight, it's not like um, an environmentalist film. It's a film to me that that's much more looking at, it's a kind of moral film, really. It's There's a kind of moral chaos or a sinister element in the world around the donkey. Can you expand upon that theme, the central theme for you? Well, I believe it's a kind of uh, hidden or maybe not even hidden, but uh, maybe quite obvious, appeal to people for changing their attitude to animals. And nature. And nature. You know, usually humans mistreat the animals in a way that they don't treat them as a as a as a as a living creature. They treat them like things, you know, like the the objects which can be useful, but when they are not useful, that they are just thrown away, pushed away, you know, or dismissed or, or ignored. But they are the living animal. They are living creatures. You know, they have the, the same or similar feelings to us. They need the the feeling of being secured. You know, the bezpieczny. Yeah, safe, mm. safety. Yes, and um, and how do you did you? I mean, how do you direct a donkey? I know there were several donkeys that you had, but do you think because the emotion we get from this film is it from the donkey to a degree, or is it just from your directing around the donkey? Do you think is it from the cinema, the way that you can the montage and the way that you place the camera? Working with with donkey, I develop a. a Instinctively, I developed a method which basically was the fact that I try to spend as much time as possible with the donkey. So whenever my crew was busy, you know, uh, having lunch or, or preparing new shot or waiting for the for the piece of uh, equipment necessary to to for the scene, I instead of going to the trailer by the way i didn't have the trailer but the donkey has got one <laughs> i i mean they they have their own um uh, horse wagon so instead of going for some coffee or, or or walk or rest i was going to the donkey's trailer and spend the time with him 
And basically what I did was kind of whispering all the time some nonsense. You know how we talk to our home pet. It's not a matter of the meaning of the words, but the tone of voice, a gentle, uh, you know, uh, quiet uh, tone, which uh, made the animal understand that this is this is a, a friendly approach. So I was talking that nonsense, gentle words nearly to his ears, you know. And then when I look at his eyes, I believe that that we are creating a kind of union, that, that we are both on the mission. I don't know if I only kind imagine. Of this is almost a telepathic bond being created, yes, I think. Like, no, like, like there was a deep understanding that of togetherness. But maybe you haven't imagined it really, no? <laughs> well, but I I, did. I, well, perhaps, but I mean, I'm, I'm just curious. It did work. It did work. So I mean, we were shooting when we were actually making a, a shot. I was all, also always try to be as close as possible to the animal, just to be out of frame, but as close and still whispering, even in the lower voice, not to disrupt the soundtrack but letting him know that I am with him. I'm with him. Okay, let's go. Let's but do it. Carrots let's do it. Helped, yes, eh? And carrots. carrots and help. carrots. Yeah. yeah. And also working in teams work because, you know, it was uh, very interesting. You know, Ola uh, was a girl and Taco, the, to the two main donkeys were Taco, the male, and Ola, the female. And Taco actually fall, fell in love with Ola on set. So, it was very easy to get him, you know, move from place to place because it was enough to place Ola at the end of wherever we wanted him to go. And he would just... He was you know, going towards her. <laughs> no stopping him, in fact, you know. Can, can I ask, is, is there... I mean, you, you don't have to answer this question because it's quite personal, but, I mean, given the film you've made, first of all, are, are you vegetarians? And the second question is... is nearly, there, nearly. Nearly, okay. While we were working on this film... We reduce meat consumption drastically. What we still eat quite rarely, but... But for special occasions, special instances, like once every two weeks, you know, we have a piece of meat. Uh, with a feeling of guilt that, that we are committing the sin, but I hope that one day we become fully vegetarian, vegetarians, and... Um, but a big part of our crew, you know, uh, was either vegetarian or stopped. I mean, our the lead actress, Cassandra, is vegetarian. Our first AD, I mean, there's lots of people working on the film uh, who are. And then also we were selecting our crew based on the, you know, on their attitude towards animal, which was also which was also quite unusual for a film production, you know, so that the first question when you hire somebody is like, you know, hey, what's your attitude towards, you know, animals? I mean, it's, is there a spiritual belief behind this 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 endeavor for you both at all? No, I think it's a very sort of common sense, moral, uh, you know, moral understanding of injustice, you know, of of something, you know, being totally, absolutely wrong, you know, about about the way the things are. And maybe you know, this is not uh, is not uh, the case in Australia because actually, you I think have pretty good laws, no, regarding to animals. No, I, I I couldn't tell you. I'm not. I I wouldn't be able to compare. 
I think you do, but in Europe, especially in rural areas, you know, in Poland, in countries which are sort of, you know, still, you know, overcoming the the past, you know, I mean, it's still very, it's, it happens very often that the animals are mistreated, and it's uh, it's just a sim- simple simple sense of injustice. And the donkey, of course, is the workhorse of of Europe, especially, right? It, traditionally, it was it was quite a lowly animal in in some ways. And always very philosophical and broody, and it has this uh, this incredible potential for you know for stoicism and sadness, really. You know. Do you think more than a horse? I mean, I'm curious about why why the donkey. I think because it's um, you know it sort of it bring it sort of evokes more sympathy from you for some reason. I don't know why. You know, and it it's much much less prevalent. You don't see them so much. You know, and you. Obviously, I mean, there are some horses which are cherished and loved and taken care of. You know, the donkeys never, never, you know, never, never were of, you know, never had the same statue. They were basically used to, you know. Yeah, they were always treated as a working animals, you know, not. I myself, if not for the size of the donkey, if they would be a bit smaller, I would love to have a donkey as a home pet. You know, really, house pet, not home pet. House, house, house pet. <laughs> they are such a lovely creatures, you know, really so gentle. So something really philosophical about them, you know, there is something strange, hard to name. I'm just thinking back to that, to the moment where we, we go to the robot, for example. Um, how did you set up a visual language for this film? You've spoken about how you get close to the donkey. That was, I suppose, one guiding principle being close to the donkey but it strikes me as a film that that's quite heterogeneous in some heterogeneous in some ways because there's sort of various ideas that happen visually what was your approach formally to it can you enlighten me on any other guiding principles you had on shooting this film well the basic idea the basic visual idea was established by the fact that we wanted to bring the donkey as close as possible to the audience, to manipulate the audience in a way to let them, at least from time to time, to identify with the donkey. In order to achieve that, we decided to to use in the film as much as possible donkey's points of view, you know, just just to let the audience to to become donkeys and that once we established this pattern and we shot every scene we shot in the identical manner first of all it was the establishing shot the kind of master shot you know showing the general situation who is present where are they and what they're doing and then we always concentrate on the donkey and then close shot of his eyes and then we cover the same arrangement which we shot in the master shot objectively we cover it with the kind of point of view of the donkey to our surprise the effect was practically always the same the point of view of the donkey, although we shot exactly the same situation, exactly this, nothing was changed, but it looked a little bit different. Like, I don't know, because of the of the previous shot, which was the melancholic eyes of the donkey, 
it looks slightly different. I cannot even find the word, you know, how to describe it, the difference. It was uh, always the same effect that, and, and that difference, what did that difference do? What do you think that difference does to the audience? Well, is it slightly unsettling or let slightly them identify? Let them identify with the with with the, with the animal and the fact that it's danger. You know that this animal is napiente uh, tense, 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 and uh, afraid, perhaps. You know, aware of the possible danger. No, but also, you know, being, as as you said at the beginning, being, being as close as possible to the animals to the point of really feeling, you know, each hair of fur on his body, really. And also sort of allowing ourselves, you know, this very poetic, quite extravagant approach, you know, like always being ready to sort of turn the camera somewhere completely else, you know, if there's something beautiful is happening. Eva and Yoshi, thank you very much for speaking to me about this remarkable film, and I hope as many people as possible can go and have the pleasure of seeing it while it's on screens here in Australia. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Writer, director and producer Jerzy Skolomowski with co-writer and co-producer Eva Piaskowska. EO is in cinemas in limited release in Australia this week. And did I mention it has a wonderful soundtrack that goes from heavy metal guitar to orchestral to percussive to electronic. I cannot recommend this film enough. Before I go today, some very sad news with the deaths just this last week of veteran film critic and key figure on the Australian film scene, Tina Kaufman, and of film critic and filmmaker Ruth Hesse. Both women shared their knowledge and expertise on ABCRN's microphones over the years. Hesse shared a studio with me in presenting duties on a precursor to this show. Both will be sorely missed. Our thoughts go out to their loved ones. I'm Jason DeRosso. Thanks to producer Sarah Corbett. This has been The Screen Show. See you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.